0: And you're thinking, why the hell am I riding a motorcycle? This is insane. It gets misty and all you and it's all wiggly. And you've got, you know, if you're me, you've got your knobbly tires on. You're worried about coming off, and you've got all the luggage. on your like, oh my god, yeah. I'm really you're not enjoying this at all. It's extraordinary. Drive all the way up to the to the top of the mountain. Enter the tunnel. They're all about four to six miles long, that kind of length, you know, serious tunnels. You go and you enter the tunnel, do your four-mile tunnel, come out on the southern side and it's baking hot, bright sunshine, blue skies. But it's like, it's like you've been through some kind of space-time continuum. It's really, really exciting. no you, And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio.
1: The Cycle Pump Tire Inflator has been proven to be the best motorcycle pump in the business. It's made by Best Rest Products, along with the tire iron, bead breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and a bunch of other moto gear. Cyclepump.com. Don't chance losing your gear because your straps loosened or failed. Get Green Chili Adventure Gear. Heavy-duty, American-made, innovative luggage systems for all motorcycles, and you can turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage with their system. GreenChiliADV.com. Max BMW has four locations. They've got forty-five thousand parts and accessories available online, ready to ship to your door the moment you order. MaxBMW.com. My name's Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Grab a pen, make some notes with this. This could be your adventure for the upcoming season. Long abandoned trails still in excellent shape for riding, crisscrossing a vast area of mountain wilderness, offering stunning views with cliffs and waterfalls, abandoned buildings, open meadows, all accessible in one of the most beautiful places in the world. It's a paradise for adventure riders. And today, Austin Vince is going to spill it all. He's going to tell us where it is, what to experience, and how to get there.
0: Hello, my name is Austin Vince. I'm from London in England, and uh, I have been a maths teacher most of my life. But now I uh, run motorcycle tours in the Spanish Pyrenees.
1: Austin, welcome back to Adventure Rider Radio.
0: Thanks for having me. This is a great treat.
1: You, you know, you just said that you spent most of your life as a maths teacher. People in North America will will drop the s and just call it a math teacher. But um
0: well, you, there you go. you see. <laughs> we gave you we, you we gave you a great language as a starter pack, and you refuse to use it.
1: Well, I think that happens with evolution, doesn't it? Somebody comes up with an idea and then it's more refined as it as it goes on. People build on
0: it an excellent excellent repos. i won't even begin to battle with you well done both. so, so
1: you, you, most of your life though teaching you know if you were to to uh watch um a, a video that you just recently sent me it looks like you spend most of your time riding motorcycles where does the teaching nah, begin?
0: well that's for the purposes of that film i was happy to give that impression but like every normal person um i need i have a job a normal job and uh uh the good thing about being a school teacher was that it it's uh kind of segmental kind of job where I was able to approach my principals in my my school and say, can I have a year off to do my big trips, Mono Enduro, Terra Circa, Mono Sahara, all of them, all of those trips were accommodated within uh, my employment. So that was nice to be able to get, you know, a year at a time off uh, and then come back, have your job held open for you. The nature of teaching means that that, um, you can kind of slot you know, back in because the math hasn't changed while you've been away. (laughs) And um, the other thing is that um, in my most recent job, uh, I used to spend my summer holidays going out um, to the Pyrenees and um, creating a a series of events out there, scouting trails and and creating events by which which a mechanism by which I could share what I'd learned. And the joy of... Obviously, having a paid vacation when you're a school teacher is that I could go and spend uh, a month in Spain. Uh, Dare I say it at the school's expense? Because it was a, it was a paid holiday. So the only problem is that it meant I never went on holiday anywhere. I was every holiday I was always in in the Pyrenees, and everyone else actually went to Australia and the Bahamas and things like that. <laughs> so,
1: Well, let's jump back a little bit. I want to know, how do you find yourself originally on the back of a motorcycle? And then the other part of that question would be, how do you find yourself now being sort of an evangelist for small motorcycles for travel?
0: Um, Well, the answer to both of those questions is that um, I found myself in those places by sheer chance. I was... Uh, i grew up in in the suburbs of northwest london in a, in a place called harrow and uh, and ha- had a kind of pretty traditional uh, suburban middle class existence but i had the advantage of a of a, a dad who had bought an ex-army royal enfield 500 cc motorcycle um, in about 1949 and had gone on a few trips to France and spain on it in, in 1949 1950 which in those days was considered pretty avant-garde you know if you could imagine how reliable a, a, a bike like that would have been back then and um, so uh, it meant that when my older brother got a motorbike uh, he wasn't he wasn't run out of the house. Sort of thing. So, although my dad stopped motorcycling as soon as he could get a car, which is a, obviously a standard story in Britain in the 50s and 60s, um, he didn't stop my my brother getting a motorcycle. And being a little boy um, with an older brother, a teenage brother with a motorbike, I, I, all I could see was something that was very very cool. And it was Evil Knievel time. Uh, I was the perfect age, like you know, 10, when um, when Evel Knievel was at the peak of his of his power and and did. Uh, You know, the movies with the the Viva Knievel and the Knievel movies with George Hamilton were on at the cinema. And that was cool. And then he did this jump in London, which I went to and and saw that in Wembley Stadium. I can't remember what year that was, something like 76. And uh, that was, you know, intense. That that was a big deal in this Internet age where we all look at screens the whole time. To go and see Viva Knievel do the jump and crash right in front of you. That, you know, that was how can, how can that not affect you? Can't you can't have that experience and come out the other end a normal person and then just talk about professional sport and buy a car? You know, you 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 have to you end up getting a motorbike, don't you? <laughs> and so, um, so that was that was how I got into that. Uh, and then, re, I mean, I was like a normal person in that when I first got my first motorbike, I was, I was kind of trying to get the biggest thing I could, the fastest thing I could. When I was twenty one, twenty two. I wanted to, you know, have an amazingly huge crotch rocket type thing, and I was looking at a GS thousand, and uh, my brother had a Yamaha FJ twelve hundred, which was uh, back then in the in the eighties was the you know most powerful production motorcycle in the world by a long way, and very quickly I was doing one hundred and sixty miles an hour on that on a deserted road somewhere, and that was exciting, and so I was like a lot of people heading towards high speed street bikes, and then we but at the same time we just had this idea of doing this long motorcycle trip around, around the world that we ended up calling Modern Enduro. and we and we took 350 cc DR350s on that and uh, and and they were trail bikes not street bikes and uh we didn't really know what we were doing but we'd read an article by somebody who'd ridden to Kenya from England and he'd taken one of these bikes and he'd bucked the system by doing that so we copied him and um and that was basically a good idea. The mistake we made was that we we had small bikes, but we took the amount of luggage with us that you would be able to fit onto a massive bike. We didn't realize that if you if you pile the small bike with as much luggage as you could possibly fit on it, um, then you take all of its great characteristics away from it. So we, it took a trip around the world to learn that the hard way, <laughs> and then um, uh, and then as time went on, uh, I realized I definitely didn't want, I had a few more ex- experiences on bigger bikes, I realized that uh, I didn't want to, uh, another thing happened after the Montevideo trip was that I, I got into what you would call dual sport riding or trail ride in Britain, we call it trail riding, I didn't, I I, I had a kind of dalliance for about two years with enduros and hare and hounds and, and that kind of thing, and realized that I didn't, uh, I wanted to ride dirt. Uh, uh, I wanted to ride dirt. I wanted to ride off-road, but I wasn't that interested in 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 winning, and I certainly didn't have the, the you know the racing streak inside me. I wanted the, and I also realized I wanted a sense of travel with my dirt biking. I wasn't that interested in going around a circuit again and again and again. So I kind of drifted into into trail riding, which would involve. Um, you know, a much, much better sense of travel and it's a much more um, leisurely and restrained uh, um, hobby. And it was all about, I think trail riding is... A combination of, okay, you like riding a bike off road because it's slightly f- more fun than riding it on tarmac, a bit more challenging, a bit more exciting. It's probably more remote if you're, if you're doing it properly. Um, but then you also get this sensation of, of, oh, hang on, if I own this trail bike and I go oh, trail riding, I can end up in places that almost no one else can get to apart from on foot or maybe on a good mountain bike. So that gave you this kind of miniature adventure thing happening. So, the more I got into trail riding, the more obvious it was that trail riding is obviously easier, the smaller your bike is. And it's, uh, you know, when the whole motorcycle world is all about speed, power, and size, it was funny to find this tiny little crack of motorcycling that was nothing to do with the bike. The thrill was, where have you gone? Where have you got to? And, and, and motorcycle travel, expedition motorcycling, of course, is the, is the same thing. It's all about where you've been, not what you were riding, so immediately that I, I kind of started to drift down that um path then i then I got involved in in organizing these map reading navigation events in in the Pyrenees, and I kind of took that one stage further whereby i I wanted to create an event where people got to places that they would never have got to otherwise. But they also did it by their own skills, navigation, and preparation, which gave you another layer of thrills to, to add to the actual basic motorcycle package. So think of it as, as 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 the way you build up a sandwich, like they do in like they do in New York. You know, you can have you start with your basic bread and butter, then a piece of cheese, then a piece of ham, then the onions, then the guy. You know, and, and I think once you get into self-navigated trail riding, you're getting very close to almost the best thing that you can do on a motorbike. The full sandwich exactly the full sandwich with it, like those you can't even fit in your mouth ironically <laughs>
1: <laughs> so um with the uh, the thought of the smaller bike though have you, have you ever tried one of the larger bikes? I mean you know you the whole, the craze of, of large adventure bikes and people doing the same thing that you're talking about now only on a larger bike, have you actually given them a try
0: yeah, totally um, well, i used to i mean my, you know my first bike was a my first job was, uh, as a motorcycle courier, I used to ride around on a, an 850, um, BMW, an R80, not no, an 800, an R80. And, and I loved it, uh, on tarmac. Um, I did, I did the Arizona by country discovery route with the from Touratech, um, a couple of years ago and they lent me a, um, uh, a 650, uh, BMW. I think it's called a, I can't remember what it's called. Um, and i didn't care for that at all it just seemed to be um it just seemed to make the job harder uh and on that trip about four of the people of the ten of us had 1200 gs's and i was staggered at how capable those enormous bikes were um, on the trails there was no question that the bike was in any way not up to the job but i I'm proud to say that I was man enough to realise that I wasn't a good enough rider to be up to the job. So, um, uh, you know, the obvious thing is that uh, if you're on your own as well, or if it's just two of you and you've got these enormous bikes and you want to do unusual off-road things, then the bike could probably do it, but can you?
1: Hmm. Or can you pick question? it up afterwards? Yeah, exactly. Or how many times um, can you pick it up afterwards? That's that's often yeah, exactly. the issue.
0: And remember, no, you know, almost, uh, almost, no one takes you for a test ride on, a, on one of those big bikes with it having full luggage on it. Yeah. Uh, and then, and uh, and also, um, you know, if I was, if I had to drive hundred miles a day on Ashfeld to commute or something like that, or if, you know, two hundred miles, a hundred miles each way, I I would own a GS or an Africa, hundred Africa Twin. I can say that now, um, but. So I think, they, you know, those bikes totally have their place. There's no, you would be laughed out of court if you try to suggest those bikes weren't um, amongst the most superb machines ever designed. But I want a motorcycle that helps me do what I want to do. And what I want to do is to go off the beaten track. And then when I'm off the beaten track, I want to go off a track that goes off the beaten track. And then when I'm off the track that goes off the beaten track, I want to go off another track. And then I want to go somewhere that, uh, that, that maybe no one's ever been. And then camp the night there. By the side of a stream or something, and I'm not confident I can do that on a big adventure bike. I'm pretty sure I can't as well. And then also, the cost of that big adventure bike is 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 more than I than I feel I need to spend, so I could spend the money on the trip.
1: Hmm. Plus a tires and, um, and chain, and yeah, exactly. Yeah. you end up having um, to replace on a larger bike. Hey, you you mentioned, and I get what you're saying about that. I was just curious if you'd actually given the, the large bikes a try. Oh yeah,
0: totally, totally. But yeah. you,
1: you mentioned just sort of briefly there that you when I asked you about how you got on the back of a motorcycle, and you're saying that eventually you you and your uh, older brother came up with the idea of doing the trip from Mondo and Duro. So like an interesting little data point with that. Were you guys the first group to ride um, the road of bones to Magadan?
0: Yeah, yeah,
1: that's pretty incredible. That's that's pretty neat because I mean it's it's such a destination for people nowadays. I mean it's the place that people talk about going.
0: Yeah, wrongly so. It's not you know it's, it's Magadan's you know a dump, and uh, road bones is not particularly uh, scenic route, uh, but it sounds good, doesn't it?
1: Mm, it certainly does.
0: Well, if you if you if you watch the Mono Enduro film, you will notice that all of the film. Uh, or the action in the film is in the Zilov Gap, which is two thousand miles away from the Road of Bones. That was where it was difficult. The Road of Bones is a road and always was a road. It was always a route that was used by jeeps, trucks, you know, cars, stuff like that. It was ne- Whereas the Zilov Gap was us trying to get across a part of Siberia that that humans were never meant to drive across. So after we'd done the Zilov Gap and uh, been through that hardship. The road of bones was just an extension of the of the of the, press, the pressed aggregate road from from um, north to Yakutsk. It's just it's just a dirt road. A, there was a couple of fords where the bridges had collapsed, where you had to ford the river, but they were they were fordable, you know. So it was so we rode from Yakutsk to um, Magadan in three days. Mm. It was it was completely devoid of mm. adventure.
1: The, so but you're people, saying, is it the Zilov Gap? Is that what you're saying?
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Zilof, I mean, the Zilov Gap, has, which is between the towns of Shunyshevsk and Skovorodino in, in Siberia, that's now been uh, filled, so to speak, with a road. Mm. So, you, so now you could drive from Paris to Vladivostok without leaving the road, whereas back in 95, there was this 400-mile section where there was no road. And you either had to put your bikes on the train and and do a train hop of four hundred miles, or you had to try and do the Zillah Gap. And we were the first people to do that, you see, as well, back on, on Terra Circa.
1: So it was back in, I think, was it ninety nine and Enduro?
0: No, ninety five.
1: So back in ninety five, yeah. you did your trip around the world, and then I think in two thousand one, you did the Terra Circa that you just talked about. Now you just mentioned there. Yeah, yeah. There. So this this side thing that you're doing, talk about that.
0: Well, I just. Um When we came back from Terra Circa in 2001, uh, at the end of 2001, we'd all really got the bug for trail riding. Uh, uh, We'd got the bug for off-roading. I pretty much knew that my uh, my last, uh, that was probably going to be my last big round-the-world trip. Um, And around that time, I met the woman that became my wife, Lois Price. So I got busy falling in love and everything like that. So I didn't want to go off anywhere. I wanted to be at home, you know, not be on the road. And... Uh, and about that time, me and my brother Gerald had uh, kind of formed a little group of friends who went trail riding. And we used to do that in the UK. But we had this idea that, that there was better pickings out in Spain. And we used to – and I was obsessed with Italian Westerns, specifically Westerns. I knew that there was this desert out in the southeast of Spain, near Almeria. So we, I had a van uh, and we bought a trailer and we got all our mates with dirt bikes. We all got in the van and we went out to Almeria to, to – to ride motorbikes around where they made all the westerns, so we did that. But that was that was sixteen hundred miles drive from London, Gosh. and we went all the way out there, had a good time. It was brilliant fun, and then we finished off the trip by going to the seaside and you know uh, mucking about in the in the sea. And that was a, that was a great holiday. But then then we heard this, uh, we saw an article in a magazine called Trailback Magazine in Britain about uh, about the Spanish Pyrenees and how they were a brilliant place to go trail riding. And in this article were some spectacular photographs. And I thought, wait a minute, the Pyrenees are only halfway between London and Almeria. If we could go trail riding there, that would be much, a much better way of doing it. So my brother and I went out to the Pyrenees with the, with the van and a couple of bikes, three bikes and a, and a buddy, did some reconnaissance work. It went hopelessly wrong. We were um, completely unable to find the trails that we were trying to ride. But... Uh, and we were kind of like stuck on the tarmac, and and we were looking for trails. We couldn't really find them. So we thought, but we could see in the distance bits of trails uh, from high points and stuff like that. And we thought, well, there must be some way of doing this. So we had a brainwave, and there was this shop in London called Stamford's, which was uh, silly. It's the biggest um, um, biggest map shop in Great Britain. And we went down there, and sure enough, they had one in fifty thousand maps, which is two centimeters to a kilometer really good usable maps they had uh, 150,000 maps of all of the pyrenees so and they were there on the shelf you know so my brother and I went 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 through the kind of list you know they had there's the whole was covering like 800 maps we found the ones that we needed which was like 12 maps and we bought all of them took them home and started studying and sure enough the trails the trails were marked the trails that we've been looking for were marked on these maps so we spent I mean, my God, I don't know—like twenty hours going over these maps, trying to find the, the the trail routes that connected one valley with with another.
1: What are the trails that you're looking at? Are they not dirt bike trails? Are going to be logging or farming? Or? No,
0: that they will be far, they will be all in in the Spanish Pyrenees. There'll be old farming trails. They were built by farmers,
1: right? So that's because the farmers used to keep their their cattle, etc., in the valley, and then in the summertime, they'd
0: they'd take them up other to the higher around, other elevations. All the way around. All uh, the way around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a phenomenon in the Pyre, in the Catalan Pyrenees, where low down you've got jagged rough gorges and vertical cliffs if you ascend up to the top of a your average pyrenees mountain certainly in the in what you might call the what they call the midi pyrenees not the very highest bit in the midi pyrenees you ascend up to the top and you'll get to a meadow that's a, that's as, sometimes as flat as a as a sports pitch covered in beautiful lush lush grass and that meadow is is normally a, a couple of acres, and it's big enough to support a family and a farmhouse and a, a flock of um, of livestock. And um, back in the day, in the 1600s, the 1700s, and the 1800s, a family would have would have farmed that that meadow, um, grazed it, uh, lived in a farmhouse. The basement of the farmhouse would have been a stable. There would have been a cow, a cow shed, uh, and the cattle would have come in there in the autumn, and then they would have driven them down into the valley to where the big city big town was um at, um, at you know in the at the end of the autumn uh, for slaughter and for sale and then so every one of these farmhouses at altitude in the pyrenees is connected down to the valley with a with a trail built by the farmer who built the farmhouse and these are the trails you're looking at exactly uh but rather brilliantly um on a given hill there's never just one meadow You'll find one meadow with now an abandoned farmhouse because all the, all the farming is, is gone. Everyone's left for the city. This, is, this would have been subsistence lifestyle back in the 1800s. Um, but there'll be another meadow uh, with another farmhouse maybe two miles along the ridge line. So when you get up to the top of the hill, you find the farmhouse in the meadow. But then there's a trail that leads off towards another farmhouse. But hang on, then once you're on the ridge, there's another valley on the other side. So there'll be a trail going down the other side of the valley that will take you down to another village on the other side. So what you've got is this, um, normally when you learn geography and stuff like that, the idea is that routes get built up between towns, don't they?
1: Sure, but um, usually they get overgrown when they're not
0: used. Yeah, but these, uh, but these routes are all um, hewn out of rock. Mm. So all of these trails um, uh, don't get grassed over and abandoned. Um, they just they just sit in there as as as, um, as rough strips of open rock. It's also because they're, because they're all cut out of the rock. It also means that as the years have gone by, they haven't been washed away or degraded. Uh, whereas. By contrast, in Siberia, you if you find a rough road in Siberia, it will be on uh, mulch, on kind of uh, mud or clay, or like the taiga, as it's known, um, which is incredibly weak. You only have to drive across it once or twice in a truck, and you've ruined it. Out in the Pyrenees, everything is, is on rock, and so it's kind of indestructible. So you've got this amazing network of trails built up by tens of thousands of farmers spread over. 5,000 square miles of mountain scenery. And all of these farms and farmhouses interconnect with each other and the valleys uh, and the small towns. And the trails that they built were built, uh, are still there and are completely intact and are our dirt bikers' uh, paradise. I mean, it's just a perfect storm.
1: And you're allowed to ride them? Totally.
0: Because they're all, um, uh, since they were built, they were... um, I mean, they would – maybe nowadays you might be – they might have been considered as private driveways. But part of the Spanish sensibility is that when somebody built a, a, a trail from their farm down to the town, down the side of the mountain, they didn't put a gate at, at the bottom of it saying, this is our driveway, posted, no trespasses. It was um, – maybe because there were no trespasses. <laughs> <laughs> there was nobody to trespass. And the only people around that area would have been their neighbors anyway. So now that the farm the farm uh, owners and the farmers have all gone and the farmhouses are just ruins, um, the trails are just left there open. Needless to say, the statutory council authority or the National Park Authority has taken them over uh, and has encouraged their use as cycle tracks and stuff like that. But they're still – they are obviously were built for, for horses and carts. So they're what you might call vehicle width. You know, you could drive a, a 4x4 up any of them. Um And so the hills are hardly used, but they're not actually abandoned. So local people go up there for hunting as well, which is a huge thing. Obviously, in in North America, that's not a rare thing. But for a British person, we don't go hunting in the countryside. Um, But in Spain, they do. There's a lot of boar and a lot of deer. So now the people who used to live in the farmhouse don't go up there. But local um, outdoorsy hunter types do go up there do go up into the hills in their 4x4 and their dogs, and then they do a bit of hunting. So the, 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 the hills still have complete and total public access.
1: Hmm. So, so no more subsistence living. They're, they're recreation-based.
0: Yeah. But still yeah. being used. That, oh, totally, yeah. Can, can
1: you describe the Pyrenees, what exactly we're talking about here?
0: So the, so the Pyrenees is a mountain range that forms the, a natural border between France and Spain. Um, I'll probably say something wrong here, and one of your listeners can correct me, but loosely speaking, the African plate uh, pushed upwards at one point, and the European plate pushed downwards, and the place where the crack was, or the, where, the place where those two things met, is where the Pyrenees are now. And the two plates squashed together, and as you can imagine, got all pushed up and deformed, and uh, the scale of the deformation was so enormous that um, the ripples of what was left in the smallest parts of the deformation are now the peaks of the Pyrenees, um, and uh, the the scale of this is so enormous that the the, the mountain range is jagged uh, rock for a, a thickness, a width, so to speak, of about seventy miles, and uh, and uh, and a width from the Bay of Biscay to um, the Mediterranean Sea of about. 700 miles so an incredibly um, aggressive jagged rocky formation add on top of that millions of years of rainfall and erosion and you find that of course um, the high ground formed by the Pyrenees is of course what precipitates rainfall when the rain falls, it flows down the side of the mountains and, and flows south into Spain or north into France. And in doing so, has carved some truly spectacular valleys and gorges over the millennia. Um, what what this leaves behind is why I would, without wishing wish to be too glib, why I would call Europe's greatest undiscovered wilderness. Everybody knows about the Alps and the Dolomites in Italy, but the Pyrenees are are massive in scale. I mean, 24,000 square miles of actual mountains, Mm -hmm. which is the the area of the country of Wales. And real mountains, you know, real proper, you know, jaggedy mountains, but interspersed with these small meadows with small communities that that have left behind this trail network.
1: It's got an interesting weather pattern as well, doesn't
0: it, for the mountain range? Certainly, the the beauty of it is is that on the French side, um, the weather's generally wetter than on the Spanish side, where it's generally drier. So it also means that you get um, a much more, uh, a generally a much more arid sensation on the Spanish side, which is good for trail riding, uh, good for rough camping. Um, and it also makes you know if you want to go on a holiday there, which is part of my job now, it means the weather's generally much more predictable. Uh, in the winter, it's snowbound and there are ski resorts there, um, relatively humble ones, not, uh, not as well developed as those in the Alps, but it's, it's completely snowbound uh, in the winter. The highest peaks in the Pyrenees got to about um, 9,000 feet, but the area I operate in is between uh, about 3,000 feet and 6,000 feet, and that's uh, an enormous area to, to exploit as a playground. And it just goes on and on and on.
1: It, it's got a lot of peaks, I know, that um, many, many peaks. I think it's uh, over 100 peaks uh, that are over 3,000 meters. It, it's sort of formidable. There's not a lot of passes to go through. So you can, how do they get from one side to the other?
0: Well, the, there's about eight passes and they all occur at about um, 7,000 feet, that kind of height. Right, so they're quite high. Yeah, yeah. So it's a long, long, wiggly Meandering road up to the pass, and then down the other side. Uh, those passes um, have now mostly been eclipsed by tunnels, which mean that you you do the drive up towards the the, um, the pass that you always used to do, but you you dive into the tunnel before you do the final really steep, wiggly part um yes yeah, so there's about seven asphalt roads that cross the pyrenees you know spread over 600 miles which is not many really is it there's two major railway tunnels and i mean which are like you know four, four miles long uh and they were built uh in the well one in the west was built in the only in the 1920s uh on the can frank line and the one in the east which is um uh what they would loosely call the Barcelona to Toulouse railway—that was that was built in about the 1890s. So the railway tunnels came first, obviously, and the roads were the poor relation. All the road tunnels were built in the um, 80s and 90s.
1: We talked about the weather, and, and you just mentioned the tunnels, and you told me before what it's like to ride through the tunnels. Can you talk about that?
0: Sure. The um, well, often in the, when I ride down through France to get to the Pyrenees to, to start a season of events. Um, the the weather in France is as unpredictable as it is in Britain. Um, certainly in the main body of France. So you can get off the ferry um, in uh, La Havre, start your your six hundred mile journey across France, and it can be raining on you hard for two days nonstop. And you ride to get to the Pyrenees. You're miserable and soaked through. and You're thinking, why do I do this? You know, why didn't I get a van and put the bike in the van <laughs> and uh, you know that old chestnut and you enter the, one of the tunnels uh, that goes through the Pyrenees. You right up through the Pyrenees, it gets misty and everything like that. You, and it's all wiggly. And you've got, you know, if you're me, you've got your knobbly tires on, you're worried about coming off, and you've got all the luggage and everything. Oh, my God, you know. You go and you enter the tunnel, do your four mile tunnel, come out on the southern Spanish side, and it's baking hot, bright sunshine, blue skies. And, it's, and it is literally, it is of course literally another country. But it's like it's like you've been through some kind of space-time continuum. It's really, really exciting, and that's uh, and that's of course a joy. The other joy is that the best uh, that the, the if you looked at a cross section, if you if you stood in the in the um, Mediterranean and looked west at the Pyrenees, a cross section of the Pyrenees is not uniform. Uh, it is asymmetrical, and the vast majority of the of the topography and the relief and the altitude of the Pyrenees is on the southern Spanish side. So, if you're me and you're looking for somewhere to run really high quality uh, off-road motorcycle projects, then not only do you get the access and the and the terrain on the southern Spanish side, but you also get the climate. So it's 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 nice in life to have a win-win, and that is one of them. So it sounds
1: like a, just a, a perfect riding spot for anyone who likes off-road and exploring on their own. What's it like for civilization? I mean, are there, are, can you get parts and things here? Can you get accommodations? Like, sort of describe okay. what, the, what it's like.
0: Well, the brilliant thing about the Pyrenees is, is that um, because it's Europe, it's, of course, civilized. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> um, and so you can have this fabulous experience of, of, of very quickly... Feeling like you're in a in, like you're in Siberia, or like you're in a wilderness that is beyond description in the in the scale of how you know. There's views that you can where you can look out and see nothing that is man-made. You know, you know and that happens again and again and again. Um, and that's just when you're on tarmac. Once you start, um, if you can imagine the the Pyrenees is so is so rugged that. Um, when statutory authorities spent money building roads, they would do you know, the bare minimum. Even the you know because every road was a nightmare: thousands of bridges and culverts and, and viaducts, which every single inch of it had to be smashed and blasted out of the rocks. Uh, uh, none of it was easy, and it's all um, very wiggly and irrit- you know hard work for any civil engineer or surveying team. So the amount of tarmac roads that exist are the bare minimum. And what that means is that um, the if you overlaid a, um, a a map of tarmac routes on the Pyrenees, you'd find that 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 the polygons that you were left with that were bounded on four or five sides by tarmac, those polygons will be you know three thousand three thousand acres with nothing in them except dirt tracks, hmm. and so you so you get this amazing. Paradox of astonishing scales of wilderness, that where, whereby you're never more than about twenty miles from a town, <laughs> and uh, and you're never certainly never more than thirty miles from a proper first class hospital. You're never more than fifteen miles from a gas station.
1: Wow! Oh, so it's, it's the ultimate playground. You've got oh, everything a, right yeah, there.
0: Yeah, you got to know You got. I mean, for, well, nowadays with smartphones, you don't even have to know where this stuff is, sort of thing. But you, you can find it. But so. Everything's there, hotels, um, uh, asphalt, petrol, infrastructure, supermarkets, and the occasional motorcycle shop. I mean, it's, you know, the, the towns are there, and because of, like, in all wilderness areas, when you get a town, it's pretty busy. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They've got everything. Um, and if you're really stuck, Barcelona's two and a half hours away, one of the, one of the busiest, most high-functioning cities in the world. So it, it, isn't, it is extraordinary how it's, it's perfect. And for me as a, an event organizer, I'm particularly lucky in that I can create routes where I can, I'm not lucky. I mean, what I mean is that this area allows me to create a route where everyone's in a hotel uh, one minute, they go off where I tell them to go and they don't see another human being all day. And yet, you know, they're not, they're not having to go to the Sahara. To do that, and they're doing it in a first world country where the cops are basically the good guys.
1: <laughs> so the area you're describing, I think, or that you use for the, your event, is that the only section of the Pyrenees that's
0: that's sort of good for this? No, no, no. That's the Pyrenees covers twenty four thousand square miles. No, I
1: understand that, but I mean, are there more riding areas other than the, just the
0: one that you're using? Yeah, the entire place. Or oh, the the whole thing? It's it's infinite. No, it's not infinite. It's finite. But even in my lifetime, I expect to never, ever get to all of it.
1: We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, Austin's going to talk about an event that he puts on that will allow you to go in and explore this place and get an idea what it's all like. Stay with us. I think most people will agree, no matter how good your riding skills are, There's always more to learn. But learning from a skilled instructor, well, that really cuts down the learning curve. And Moto Discovery has a a unique training system they call, uh, that they've developed called Immersion Training. They run this in Moab, which is a fantastic place to do it. And the deal with it is you learn the skills much like you would at any training company, but then you head off on a real adventure for six days, six nights with your instructors. So you put what you've learned into action and we all know the value of applying what you've learned immediately afterwards. As a matter of fact, I've read research that shows that that proves that if you use what you've learned right away, the retention is much higher than if you walk away and do something else. That's the whole point of this immersion training that Moto Discovery does. By the way, Moto Discovery has been in business for over 40 years, I think. So they've been around a long time. They know what they're doing. Have a look at what they've got, motodiscovery.com. And and when you're dealing with them, or even if you're inquiring, mention that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. That's motodiscovery.com. Well, this year there are three Overland Expo shows running. There's Overland Expo West, Mountain West, and east in that order overland expo west the first one coming up is may 15 to 17 2020 in flagstaff arizona overland expo is the biggest and most comprehensive Overlanding show of its kind. Uh, They've got loads of classes being taught, instructions. There's so many things going on there. You really have to go to the the website to have a look. Everything from four-wheel drives to motorcycles and anything that you can imagine in between. Exhibitors, presentations, uh, roundtable talks, uh, equipment, you name it, it's there all at the overland expo event you've got to buy your tickets online that's OverlandExpo.com is the site there's no tickets available at the gate so you got to do it in advance but people come from around the world for overland expo so go online now have a look at which one you want to go to and book your tickets for 2020 OverlandExpo.com, and make sure you throw in there anywhere you can that you heard them here on adventure rider radio It was way back in 1976 that IMS was founded. And since then, for over 40 years now, they've been owned and operated by off-road racers and enthusiasts, building the great products that they're known for. Just take a look on any off-road racetrack. But they have a full line of adventure motorcycle foot pegs that fit our bikes. They're made with cast-certified 17-4 stainless steel, certified heat-treating process. They're built in the USA. They're warranted for life. They're incredible designs. Have a look at what they've got. IMSproducts.com. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there, you heard them on Adventure Rider Radio. IMSProducts.com. Now we're back to the conversation with Austin Vince.
0: What is the event that you're talking about? Um my main thing, well I do two I do two things in, in parallel now. But the thing that came first, so it's not chicken, it's not came it's not what came first, chicken or the egg. What came first was that was I Coming off the back of the trips that me and my brother and my buddy did out to the Pyrenees with the maps and everything, we discovered by chance, you know, we bought maps so that we could find trails to go trail riding. But we weren't interested in the maps per se as a, as a, a feature in their own right. We discovered unwittingly that going on a 100-mile trail ride with only a map and your wits and a pencil line, color, you know, colored in, or a highlight, a, a little black line highlighted on the map, trying to follow that successfully with no GPS. Uh, this is in the in the in the nineties, um, with no GPS or assistance apart from your brain and the sun and the compass. That made the trail riding, which we thought was already the most exciting thing in the world, it turned the took the trail riding up to another level. It just jacked it up.
1: The, the sign so of much. using the
0: map. Yeah, yeah. Adding adding the self-navigation to the trail riding, we thought, just took it to another level. Uh, and we were used to often, when we used to go trail riding in Britain, we'd be guided by somebody who was an expert in that local area. So we were enjoying our trail riding, not thinking about the navigation. But to go trail riding in Spain, there were no local guides, so we had to we had to do our own navigation. And so we stumbled, we stumbled across this amazing thing. And the analogy would be like, what would you rather do? Eat uh, uh, some noodles boiled in water from a packet, or would you rather go to the effort of going to a supermarket, buying all the right ingredients, learning a recipe, cooking it carefully, and then you know, and then eating a proper three-course meal that you made yourself?
1: What are you talking about? You're talking about eating better food while you're camping?
0: No, no, no. I'm not, my analogy, I've got, I've got, I've got jumbled up. What I mean is that is that doing your own navigation is more exciting than doing the same ride, but somebody showing it to you.
1: Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, sure. I mean, if you get a route sent to you for a GPS, for instance, there is some thrill in in exploring the new route, but you're still, you're just following a track.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we we weren't doing that. We were were creating these routes ourselves. Not only were we trying to um, navigate as we were going along and not get lost, but we'd created the routes in the first place by buying the maps. There wasn't, when you buy the map, there isn't a, a special colored line that says, this is a good line for motorcyclists to follow. <laughs> we just improvised the whole thing. Uh, and that was really satisfying. So when, so we were doing that in the late 90s, early noughties. And, I said, and when we did one run in particular that was really exciting because we got a bit lost and it was too, a bit late. It was later than it should have been. The sun was going down. And it was a sort of much longer section from tarmac to tarmac than we'd done before. It was about 48 miles. And I was map reading and it was really difficult. It's One of the most challenging things I've ever done on a motorcycle. And I was struck by the fact that I'd already been around the world twice by then. I was struck by the fact that this navigation thing up in the mountains with my buddies was much more stressful than anything I'd had ever done, you know, in, in Russia or Mexico or, or, or Uruguay or Zimbabwe. Whatever,
1: <laughs> stressful. Why? Because of the pressure of your buddies waiting for you to show them the way, or the fact that you're stuck yeah. out somewhere.
0: And and it was getting dark. It was getting dark. We didn't have lights. Yeah, we didn't have equipment. We didn't have any camping equipment. We didn't have any food or or shelter or anything. It was really. It was for me. It was a high pressure situation. I must not mess this up. I, you know. I, I, and the best I could do if, as a as an escape plan was to turn around and try and go back the way we came which once it got dark would be virtually as difficult as going forward. So, so getting caught out like that on a, on a day when, the, when we were out too late and the sun was setting, that was, that was a real adrenaline rush. And, it was, um, and of course, I always thought that adrenaline was associated with, with doing wheelies or ju- doing a jump or how fast do you go. Now I found my motorcycle adrenaline was coming, was related to, to, a, uh, to can I read my way out of this situation in time? Have I got the skill to do that? Have I got a group of people with me who let me do that without shouting at me and and saying, "You know you're an idiot, Austin, and then just riding off. You know? or, or how much leash will they let you run with? Yeah, yeah, or having or there being a punch up on the side of the road mm-hmm. on the side of the train, you know so it's very exciting. and so i I resolved to try and recreate that sensation by creating a, a map reading uh, challenge event which in English we call that orienteering. Do you say that in... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so so orienteering is normally, of course, done on foot and you run around the forest trying to get to checkpoints, map reading as you go. So I thought, right, I'd done a lot of orienteering when I was in the army and stuff like that. And I thought, right, I, I want to create an orienteering event, but for motorbikes and the checkpoints, instead of being a few hundred meters apart, will be three or four miles apart, spread over on one, on one sheet of a map about 400 square miles. And... So um my wife, when when we got married, I said, For honeymoon, will you come out with me to Spain and help me set up an orienteering event for trail bikes? She said she wrote about a bike as well and she said, Yeah, I'll do that. And I thought, you know, you legend. Well she'd already married by then, it was amazing, but uh, <laughs> so um so we went we went on honeymoon out to out to a small town, town called Sort near Andorra in the Catalan Pyrenees and we bought this, the map for that area, and we started riding it and we started um, uh, creating uh, all these all these checkpoints, which were like metal dog tags that I made myself at, at home. and we started screwing them to lampposts and telegraph poles and sides of bridges and balustrades of footbridges and things, and taking photographs of them and stuff like that and and just about this time, I'd got a job um, covering for an information te- technology teacher at my school who'd been fired. <laughs> and, uh, and so his, his classroom management was awful and the kids were going crazy in his lessons and running amok. So they got rid of him and they said to me, he said, Austin, you can you can run a classroom. Um, you're going to have to cover this guy's lessons. And I said, Well like, I don't know anything about information technology. And they said, don't worry, the other information technology teacher will tell you what to do uh and he'll just tell you each night the night before what you have to do with the class the next day and you just bluff it for one day and and we'll make this work for about eight weeks it was and then we'll recruit in the meantime, while you're doing that, we'll recruit a new teacher to replace the one that was fired. So I said so I said, all right. So I got this assignment to teach the IT. I'd never done this before and the new the first assignment that the the uh the other Um, teacher said we're going to do with the kids is we're going to show them how to take a picture and insert that picture into a word document and then we're going to show them how to insert a text box into a word document and uh, uh, how to scan a picture, um, uh, scan a document and insert that into a word document and make a word document that's got all these different things in it, all these different elements and I was like paying attention and I'd never seen anything like this before, this was in 2001, This, this is happening. Um, my God, you know, 19 years ago. But I'd never seen a Word document in action, you know. And he said, yeah, it's this, it's this. And and he showed me this digital camera, which I'd never seen before, you know, a camera with no film in it. I couldn't believe my eyes. I thought it was, you know, secret agent material. And, but as he went through this process, he said, this is what you're going to do with these children tomorrow. I thought to myself, wait a minute, this, because I had this idea of this, at this time, I had this idea of doing, creating this motorcycle orienteering event, but I, I didn't know how to do it. I didn't know how to tell everyone where to go. And the more this other teacher taught me through this this, um, this word document thing and taking pictures and inserting them electronically into through the computer, I thought, wait a minute, I could create, I could create a checkpoint booklet. And not only that, um, I ended up teaching IT later on. In after honeymoon, I was able to get the children to do it for my event. So they all, they, <laughs> they 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 created. They they created in the lessons the pages of the checkpoint booklet in an IT lesson, and they loved it because they were so excited that they were they were creating um, the stuff for a, for a motorcycle event. So that that worked out perfectly, really.
1: That, that's before you went on your honeymoon. and You're putting on the
0: aluminum plates. No, that was just that was just after. So so the the chronology is that I had to cover the lesson. I had to cover the lesson for the IT guy. Then we went on honeymoon, uh, and. Uh, and laid out all the event. But by then, I'd seen that it was possible to create a checkpoint booklet. Mm-hmm. So when we came back from the honeymoon with all the photographs, all these little plates everywhere, and pictures of me and my wife pointing at trees and stuff like that, we had the maps and we scanned the maps and that's when we got the kids to to put it all together to create oh, what see. became the checkpoint booklet.
1: What's it look like now? I mean, you must have a GPS at this point.
0: Uh, I started using GPS last summer. Last summer? So- so you're not, 20, 20, not really yeah. an
1: early adopter of technology.
0: No. Well, in some, in some respects, yeah. Um, but because when I was creating my events, the, um, the competitors wouldn't be uh, using a GPS. So I made a point of, when I was riding around setting the event up, of not using a GPS myself. Mm. So I had the same map and all that restrictions that they did. So if I could find my way from one side of the mountain to the other, using only the map, I could look someone in the eye and say, look, I did it with the map, uh, so you can as well.
1: So the event now, nowadays, that that you're putting on, what what does it run, once a year?
0: Yeah, it runs once a year. Uh, I do two of them, actually. One's called... Uh, the very interesting Navigation Challenge event, which is uh, an acronym down to The Vince, which is my surname. Uh, and the other one is the same event, but it's called Twinshot Trail Finder. And it's the same thing, but it's all vintage dirt bikes. So that's all like nutcases on 1960s Triumph Desert Sleds and stuff like that.
1: And in both of these events, the people are running with uh, out GPS.
0: Well, strange enough, it's amazing you should that. This September coming up, when I when I do these, September 2020 is the first year when I will allow when I've created a GPS class. So people now will be allowed to um, turn up and use actually not just GPS but anything they want, <laughs> any kind of device they want to get from one checkpoint to another.
1: And what do you supply them with? You, coordinates for for the checkpoint?
0: No, they just get given the paper map. They've got to f- find their own way of of uh, if they want to use a GPS to create a route. If they, let's say, i have got a Montana six hundred, which is what I've got, then they'll have to get Base Camp, uh, which is the backup software for that, and then they'll have to get the map of Spain, download that, and then they'll have to use that to create their own routes. Mm.
1: And what sort of um, event is this? Is there a prize
0: at the end? No, just just the respect of knowing that you're better at it than everyone else. Just the satisfaction. <laughs> <guy>. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, and it is an event, not a competition. It's a, it's a, it's a. It, the trail biking is the medium. The, it's a map reading navigation event. It's testing your ability to not get lost and to travel over hundreds of square miles of wilderness and hundreds of miles of trails without mucking it up. Your, your trail riding admin has got to be good. You've got to be able to cope with a, a puncture. You've got to be able to be towed off road. You've got to, you know, you've got to have all that kind of stuff. It's very hot. Um, uh, you've got to be able to work. You have to be in a the team. There's no solo riders. And when you're in a team, and everyone's hot and bothered, and you might have got lost, it's a it's a test of your of your ability to get on with each other and be calm and not shout at each other and all that sort of stuff. It's quite difficult, actually. It's um, uh, I love it, obviously, and I'm uh, really enthusiastic about it. And when I created the event, I simply created the event that I wished existed that I could enter. So, because it didn't exist, I I created my own one. Um, I even, I did enter it myself once one year, and I didn't even win. Would you believe?
1: <laughs> but um, I'm not it, sure what that says.
0: <laughs> well, it's it says that the person I was, the person who did win was a much better map reader than I was. Even though I'd already been to all of the checkpoints and it was me that put them there, they were even better at it than I was. So it was humbling. But yeah. the uh, the punchline is that. Um, you know, uh, not many people ride motorbikes, and out of the people that ride motorbikes, not many of them are off-roaders. And of the off-roaders, not all; most of them are, uh, um, you know, enduro people or rally people. Not many of them are trail riders, and amongst the trail riding community, the amount of people who love map reading and navigation, as well as loving the dirt biking, is minuscule. Uh, and it, but it means that the people who do want to do it are. Completely committed.
1: What's the event look like? Are you going to a base camp? Are you staying in tents and, you know, that sort of thing? Just sort of quickly run through it. Uh,
0: when you come do the events, uh, I book a, a big hotel in the middle of uh, a map uh, and everyone's staying there. Two months before the event, you will get sent by me the map, the checkpoint booklet and all of the information that you need to prepare your maps and your routes for the riding that you're going to do out in, um, uh, out in Spain. Um, because the idea is that once you get, uh, when, you, when you leave the hotel in the morning, there's two, the event is, is two 12-hour uh, days. Uh, and those are the two days that are assessed. So, of course, you're trying to get to as many checkpoints as you can in that time and as many high-value checkpoints as you can in that time. So, when you arrive in Spain, uh, you'll join, there'll be about 100 people, doing this uh when you arrive there the night before everyone settles in has a few beers stuff like that uh and uh everybody tends to share rooms with their teammates we all eat together it's a big it's meant to feel like a massive party but with a map reading dirt bike event in the middle of it that's uh, very much the vibe that i'm after uh there's only two rules at the event one uh if you mustn't care about winning and two you have to buy a stranger a drink every night and then the sub the subsection of that rule is you're not allowed to sit with your own team members uh, when you eat. So you have to make friends with the other riders. I don't want you turning up, talking to your teammates, and then, then at the end of the event, you just go back to England with them and you didn't speak to anyone else the whole time. Um, it's all about chivalrous gentlemanly uh, behavior and good sportsmanship. Uh, and even though the people who do take it seriously, they take it very seriously, they all understand that it's a celebration of of good skills and good navigation. It's not a celebration of victory or one-upmanship or, or you know, pr- you know, being sneaky uh, and uh, there's no cheating or anything like that. It's an excellent, It's an excellent atmosphere. So everyone does the event for the two days. At the end of the second day, I collect all the booklets in and I add up who's, you know, how many points each team has got. Uh, and then the people who win, they get a cup and the cup's got their name uh, written on the bottom of it. You know, I'm, they am given the cup at the dinner sort of thing. Then I take the cup back from them <laughs> and take it back to England. And I engrave their team name on the bottom of it. And then they, then I send it to them and they can have that in their living room for the next year. But then the year, uh, uh, the next year they have to hand the cup, cup back to whoever wins it, uh, the year after. And, uh, then what everyone does is they stick around for more trail riding because all the maps and all that stuff, they get to keep that. So, so they carry on riding for three or four more days and uh and then but that's not being assessed so they have a good healthy long trail riding experience
1: what sort of skill level are the trails i mean you mentioned most of them are rocks i imagine you're not dealing with much mud
0: oh there's there's plenty of water plenty of lakes they're normally caused by dams they're man-made in other words um there's almost no mud um almost no mud no sand no clay um the uh the trails are are straightforward if there's anything difficult i'll tell you about it but because the trails are all ex-farmers trails they're not um uh you know they were designed for horses and carts so they're they're not as they're not what you might call forest roads you couldn't drive a normal car along them it would be smashed to pieces um but you but uh, a, a normal trail bike or an adventure bike would be just fine yeah, the scenery is spectacular. It's, it's so beautiful. It, it defies description. And the, what, what's nice, though, is you turn around a corner and you'll find an abandoned monastery, a, 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 a massive, massive building built in, like, 1606 that's just sitting there with, that, with no one in it, with trees growing out of it and stuff like wow. that. So we put, you know, we, put, we put a checkpoint somewhere one like that. Um,
1: uh, Are you able to stay in any of these spots? You mentioned the monastery and the abandoned farmhouses. Can you use them?
0: You, can, you could rough camp anywhere. No, no one will stop you. No but in, in Catalonia, um, don't get caught lighting a fire hmm. in the summer. You can light a fire in Catalonia um, after October, between October and March. Uh, you can have a campfire. Uh, but um, there's big forest fire issues. So when you rough camp out there, which is another thing that I do, I organize rough camping trips. Um, when you rough camp, the uh, the access of places that you can camp is infinite. There's billions of places to camp.
1: Are there existing campsites where you go in and you, there's oh, no, a no, I, ring? Or no, anything? no.
0: There are campsites, but they, then you'd be parked next to a French family with a with a, <laughs> <laughs> with a a caravan and a barbecue and three children screaming. Yeah. Um, I'm talking about rough campsites. Mm. You can you can rough camp all over the place. And assuming you've got a dirt bike that will take you up the trails and off the, off the beaten track, then – once you turn off the beaten track, like as I alluded to before, you can get yourself to some amazing places that you could only get to your bike on foot.
1: What tips would you have for anyone who wants to go and explore the area on their own? Maybe they're not going to go
0: to your event. Well, the first, um, the, there's a whole uh, suite of answers to that question. The first thing to say is that if you rode a street bike on asphalt from... Uh, Bilbao or Biarritz or, or Bia on the Bear Biscay over to um, the uh, the Mediterranean following the N260 which is the, the Trans-Pyrenean highway on the Spanish side that is easily regarded as one of the greatest road rides in the world so straight off the bat you've got a tarmac experience waiting for you there which requires nothing other than some kind of motorbike and that would be Epic by anyone's standards. And Spanish people are doing that all the time. If you sit by the side of the road in the summer, you'll have touring bikes going past you all the time. Uh, And so that's, that's the first layer. So the next layer is, okay, well, that's the asphalt. What about the dirt? Well, obviously, I would argue that once you start exploring the dirt tracks of the Pyrenees, that's when you get the real thing. Everything else is just playing. Yeah, this is—it's the um, um, uh, the real meat of what the area's got to offer is off highway and off pavement, mm-hmm. and um, and the—that's where it's much harder. Nobody publishes what you might call a BDR map of this area. Now there is this fabulous thing, the Tet. Do you know about that? Yeah, the Trans. But, right, so- why don't you
1: just say what it is, though?
0: Okay, so the Tet is the Trans European Trail created by this legendary. British guy called uh, John Ross who had the presence of mind to use the internet, for want of a better expression, and the idea of international motorcycle forums to gather together uh, cross-country dirt routes in every country in Europe, but not just a random jumble bag of them, but to collect routes that fitted together to make a trans-European route. So, loosely speaking, you can get from the top of Norway, to Gibraltar off-road by following this route. So if you wanted to do in Europe some amazing trail riding, forget about whether it's the Pyrenees or not, the Tet is a great way to do that. The
1: downside... Because the Tet goes right through the Pyrenees, the area
0: that you're talking about. Oh, yeah, but it's also... But you could go and do the Tet in Romania, Mm -hmm. and it it would blow your mind. It would be some of the best uh, dirt riding of your life. You know um, there are certain elements of the tet that are that are pavement and that's because they couldn't they sometimes can't quite get the sections to meet perfectly. you know the, the two dirt sections might have a, a 10 mile bit of pavement that connects them together. but uh, they've done their best and their best is excellent. Um, so the tets are, are a hugely popular thing at the moment and but the downside of it is that um, it, if anything goes wrong, you often don't know where you are, if you know what I mean. You need to carry a load of backup maps and stuff like that. Uh, there's plenty of Tet stories of people, the, the trail says come down to this Ford and go through the river and on the other side and it's been raining and they get to the Ford and they can't cross the river. And they don't, and they don't know sort of where they are, really, because the Tet doesn't, doesn't give you escape routes and bailouts and, and stuff like that. Uh, so what you tend to have to do then is either wait for the river to go down or go back the way you came. Until following the tet in reverse, sort of thing. If you're trolling a your GPS in reverse, so it's limited in that respect. And so, uh, and the other thing is, is that of course it requires you to follow um, somebody else's route. So um, I'm a great. Uh, what I've, the feedback I've got from people about my things is that um, I rave about this area, the Pyrenees. And then instead of saying, "Look, book onto one of my tours and I'll show you where to go," uh, follow me. I give I give them all the maps and all that sort of stuff, and so they they explore it themselves, and they find that very very rewarding because the area is so exceptional. You merely have to find the long routes that are rideable from one valley to another, and you will inevitably encounter epic moments of cliffs and fabulous views. Like I said, abandoned farmhouses, abandoned monasteries, uh, um, you know, wildlife, you know, you'll see more deer and boar than you've ever seen in your whole life riding out there. And they're running all over the place. It's amazing, you know. And um, so I don't have to uh, curate the route too much because the whole area is so good. It just, It's just an embarrassment of riches. And then that's so, answer the question about going to the Pyrenees. First, first pass, just time out, you'll have a great time. Second pass, maybe get involved with the pet. And then the third pass would be come and do something with me. And then what I do is so hyper detailed and hyper uh, intense. Uh, We'll take one area and, 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 you know, and ride all over it for, uh, for several days. And for people who are, who are time poor, are in their kind of dream come true because they sort of don't have to do much uh, preparation. They can just come out and do one of my trips uh, and I've done all the hard work and then all they can do is get on and enjoy the riding and all that stuff.
1: Well, it certainly sounds like an idyllic place to explore by motorcycle. Austin, great to talk to you. Thank you very much. Thank you. I've been speaking with Austin Vince, um, actually in Spain, doing some reconnaissance work for one of his trips that he was talking about here in the Pyrenees. And we've got some photos as well as some videos from Austin in the show notes in this episode on our website. Very entertaining, well worth checking out. Um, otherwise, you can find Austin at austinvince.com. I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles at www.maxbmw.com. Also, Best Rest Products at www.cyclepump.com, Green Chili Adventure Gear at greenchiliadv.com, and Motobreeze Chain Oilers at motobreeze.com. Hey, you do us a great favor if anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime you see them anywhere, you mention that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Up another episode of adventure rider radio and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it special thanks to our producer elizabeth martin and of course to you the listener thank you very much hey if you're not doing it already we need your support the show is made on a model of advertising and listener support we want to do some great things with it this year so we need you to get behind it remember not everybody does i think a lot of people sit back thinking everyone else will do it drop by our website AdventureRiderRadio.com, and click on support And don't forget, we have another show called R Raw. You need to subscribe separately. It comes out once a month. We're about to do another one now. Uh, Make sure you subscribe to that one. My name is Jim Martin. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next week.
0: Hi, this is Lois Price of Lois on the Loose,
1: and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio.